I had quit my job that week and I didn't have my 10K follower goal yet. By the time my two weeks was up, I had my first video go viral and I was at 30,000 followers. Hello, and thank you for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson, and on this show, I talk to professionals of all different types, whether they be corporate stars, entrepreneurs, or business owners, and talk about how they've had great success in their field so far. My guest today is Abby Askew, who has actually made a living for herself in a very unique and unconventional way. So go ahead and stay tuned to hear about how she has done that flipping furniture. Thank you again for joining me. I just wanted to kind of get into what you do a little bit. You've got a really, really unique background like we were talking about. And I think we're going to get into kind of how like how fishing influenced everything and how you got started there. I guess the best place to start would be how did you first start with the fishing and get competitive with that? So fishing, I guess just kind of like the furniture, started as a hobby for me. I kind of just started pond hopping around Jacksonville. Uh, my stepdad had fished like all growing up and I'd never really taken any interest to it until we moved and had like a little pond in our backyard. If you ever do start bass fishing, it's just a really addictive sport because it's so accessible all over the country. Once I started that as a hobby, I was kind of at the point in my life where I was transferring to the University of Florida and they have a club team there. So I for sure wanted to join the club team when they're fishing tournaments. So when I transferred to the University of Florida, I joined the club team and it was like a fall tournament series, like just of the members of the UF club. And it was kind of like a qualifier to try to get the funding to go fish on a national level because we only had so much money at the public school as a club team. So in that fall tournament series, I ended up tying for first place out of pure luck. I, I was such a noob. Um, like I was just fishing with one type of bait. So that really kind of sparked the interest in tournament fishing for me. And when I was like proof of concept, right? Exactly. I was like, this is, this is definitely something I'm interested in the tournament fishing because it was kind of like a competitive edge to what I already enjoyed doing. And um, I guess being the only female kind of is like rewarding when you're beating everybody else who's been doing it for a while. But again, that was pure luck. I was fishing as a co-angler on the back of the boat. So there's not really as much strategy that goes into fishing as a boater. But when we went to go fish the first actual national tournament in the spring as a co-angler, I had randomly just ran into the coach of a women's fishing team and just kind of started talking to him. And it really sparked an interest because he was telling me about how they were a private school and they had all this funding, like the, the school covered gas, hotel, food to go all over the country and scholarships. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that fishing was like an actual college sport. So, yeah, I didn't know that either, honestly. Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I started fishing at probably 20 years old, 19, 20. And all these people have been doing it their whole life who like grew up in the South. When I say South, I don't mean Florida. I mean like Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee. Um, all those people grew up with it in their high schools and having high school teams. And uh, in Jacksonville, that's not really a popular yeah. thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you said it was kind of by pure luck that you think you won that first one. I mean, I feel like it's got to be a little bit more than that what do you think it was do you think it's kind of just this competitive drive that you have or do you think that there's more that went into that I think the big thing in fishing is having confidence in what you're doing and at that time I was only confident in one bait which is just a zoom trick worm if you fish you know what it is um I just stuck with what I was confident in in those tournaments and it played out for me. And I think that's still true today, even now that I'm not only throwing a worm, it's just really play, play your strengths. Yeah. 
and you just went all in on that and it worked out because fishing is kind of a mind game what do you mean by that that's interesting bass fishing is a lot of just strategy like it's not going out there and just casting and hoping to get lucky there's a lot of planning that goes into it and studying the lake and the structures on the bottom of the lake and studying the patterns of the fish that with goes with the seasons. So you start with the fishing and was that scholarship that you got at SCAD? Yes. Okay. So, so you go, you start, you transfer to SCAD from UF, right? Yeah. So the guy that I had randomly ran into, it was in the hotel at that tournament, was the coach to the SCAD women's team. And I already was really honestly miserable at UF because I was studying engineering and it's just, I was so unhappy. I couldn't get myself motivated to sit down and do the work. So it was kind of a no brainer for me to like go on and apply for this position. And the coach called me right away and I was like, SCAD's an art and design school and I'm in an engineering program. So that was a pretty um, bold decision with no art and design background, but I was just too sold on the idea to be able to travel and fish and have my tuition paid for. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a no brainer for me. And there was a industrial design program there. So it really relates a lot back to engineering. It's just more on the um, like physical design side rather than the mathematical side of design. And it sounds like you weren't really loving the mathematical side as much anyway. Like it's probably, it sounds like it was more the design aspect that you kind of drew you to it in the first place. Exactly. And I didn't know that because like growing up throughout grade school, I was always told, oh, you're good at math. You need to do something in math because I was always advanced in math. So I just, society tells you, you need to go to college and you need to just do what you're good at. And it was math. So I was like, I'll be an engineer. And, and I think that also goes back to the, I wanted to be an engineer just to like kind of prove myself. And I, that was just not the way to go for me because I was so unhappy. It's yeah. Engineering, I feel like is one of those things where everyone just kind of understands that it's one of those like top pursuits of being good at math, but you don't really start seeing how many different opportunities there are until you really get out into the world. Cause the fishing thing, I mean, like, like I said, I didn't even know you didn't even know at the time that there were scholarships for that until you kind of got out and started meeting people. And then exactly. all of a sudden, like all these new avenues open up. So you decide to go into this new program and you're doing the fishing at the same time. What did the first year of that look like? At what point were you in your college journey? Was that like a year in or a little further than that? Um, I was very far in. I was in my junior year, my third year of engineering. Wow. Uh, so it was a big, bold move. Uh, so three years in and it was kind of chaotic entry into this new school because it was halfway through spring semester at UF, which was the start of a new quarter at SCAD because they're in a quarter system. So the coach wanted me to come for their quarter that was starting in three weeks. So I pretty wow. much packed up out of Gainesville, got my room rented out and, and headed to Savannah, Georgia in three weeks to get there to sign my paperwork with me and my mom were looking at apartments. and. For some reason, the coach's phone was completely disconnected. Like I couldn't get in touch with him. And I, I'm like in Savannah, Georgia, already dropped out of UF. Rob, that's stupid to do that before signing my papers. But <laughs> um, so my mom's like pissed off. She's like, what's going on? So we call the athletic department and try to get in contact with him. And the athletic director tells me that he's no longer with the school. Oh, oh my god I know. my heart what? dropped so I'm like bawling in the car I just dropped out of the University of Florida on a whim to go to an art and design school for fishing so my mom was like not gonna have it we like stormed in there and the athletic director he was so great um he honestly just trusted me for my word and was like he didn't know what to do or what to say because he had even heard of me like the coach hadn't told him about that he recruited me 
So he sat, yeah, he sat, he said, I'll call you in a few hours and let you know what I can do. I oh mean, my God. this is a very expensive art and design school for them to have promised me a full tuition scholarship. So me and my mom were just headed back to Jacksonville waiting for a phone call. And um, he called me, yeah, a couple hours later, and he was like, we're going to honor the scholarship. Wow. Yeah, so it's really good on them. Um, That's insane. At the time, I'm sure you were thinking, does that mean my scholarship walked out the door with them? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. It was like my whole future flashing before my eyes. Jeez. Well, I'm glad it worked out, though. Me too. And uh, when I got to the school and I came to the first um, like fishing team meeting, really where the athletic director was going to tell everybody that the coach is gone, um, I just kind of showed up and nobody had no idea who I was or why I was there. <laughs> wow. So they yeah. honor it, though, and you you get started. And what did the first year of it look like once you're in the program in the art and design program? And um, I, I know SCAD's an incredibly unique program, so I'm sure it's it probably looks a little bit different than most college programs people are used to. What did that look like? Like a traditional college, you expect to go right into like um, your foundation classes, which would be like math, science, English. Um, the foundation classes at SCAD are like drawing and color theory. Um, so like some of the classes you have to like draw nude people like in real life. And that's not something you would ever see at a traditional school. Yeah. But it was definitely different for me. But I kind of surprised myself with my abilities to draw, which I never knew that I had all throughout my life. Very cool. And so you're you're going through that. What about the fishing? What did that look like, kind of being on that team? It was so much fun. Honestly, it was an experience of a lifetime. I've been from all over the Southeast, all the way to Arkansas, um, traveling with the team. And I just made such a good group of girlfriends. Um, it, it was so much fun. It's such a surreal experience. Um, it was really hard to balance the fishing with the school because SCAD has a super strict uh, policy that if you miss four classes throughout the quarter, that you automatically fail. Wow. So, yeah. So for us to be traveling in the middle of the quarter was really challenging. We had to really work that around our schedules and some professors are nicer about it than others, knowing that, you know, you're out of, you're out of the state for all this time for traveling for these tournaments some cared some didn't care so if you need to get your work done (laughs) at least you're going through it with like your whole team are they kind of in the same program as you at the same time yeah so most of us were actually in industrial design I think that's just the the program that draw draws people the most who aren't into art so a -hmm. lot of the people you can imagine that were recruited for fishing didn't have an art and design background okay so you're going through the same program with them and um so I guess you go through that and then eventually you graduate what were you thinking at the time that you graduate as far as like how your career was going to look were you still thinking some kind of engineering or something with industrial design or were you hoping to go uh, more with the fishing a little bit of both. So I definitely had fallen in love with industrial design uh, by my senior year. I definitely wanted to do industrial design. And I think I kind of realized there's not a lot of opportunities for industrial design if you're not willing to move across the country. So when I graduated, I did an internship in Chicago for a fishing company. So it was kind of best of both worlds. Um, and I got to design two new baits that'll be coming out in Dick's Sporting Goods. Oh, wow. That's yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about that. But once that internship ended, um, it was like they wanted it to be an in-person only type of role. So I really didn't want to move to Chicago. <laughs> you can't fish there year round. Um, it gets yeah. very cold. Yeah, I can imagine. So, Probably like, I would guess maybe even the majority of the year you couldn't. Yeah, it was summertime. 
and it was still kind of like windy and I got cold sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in South Florida, so that was just no for me. Um, yeah, if you grew up in Florida, I mean, I grew up in Florida too. You just have Florida blood. It just it doesn't work out when it gets cold. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you didn't want to move up there. So, but you had had the internship. So, what are you thinking, kind of post internship? Because that's a really cool opportunity, but you had to be thinking like, what's the next thing? I think the idea for me was to try to get into maybe like a a product management role with fishing industry or like just try to get in with a fishing company and transition into an industrial design role because there wasn't really anything open. Um, but there's two really big fishing companies here in Columbia, South Carolina. So I really wanted to try to get a job with one of those. And I did, it just, there was nothing open at all in the product side. So I just kind of applied for this role it was sort of in digital marketing it was a digital content specialist for the d2c website okay and so i was like i really need money i'm broke <laughs> i'm yeah. gonna take this job and hope it turns into something good and it was really great for a few months and then i really just got tired of the the nine to five like office grind I'm such like an outdoorsy type of person that being in those fluorescent lights all day was really depressing. I feel that. So you just wanted to kind of get out of there, but at the same time, you get a good experience and that's kind of filling in the gaps because of course I know you, you do a lot of content marketing now. That's, I guess, kind of where you started picking that up. Yeah, it really kind of worked out perfectly, perfectly for me because I didn't realize that all the things I was learning at that job we're going to play into my social media growth with SEO and hopefully eventually launching my own website with product. Um, but that role ended up transitioning into um, a demand generation role, which was like SEO and Google ads, which was really also, also awesome to learn, but it just was not my day-to-day -day thing that I wanted to do. I always joke and tell people that I would like look out next door at the guy painting the Waffle House. And I was like, I wish that was me. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to get outside somehow. Yes, I I know. Like looking at the lawn guys, I'm like, that looks fun. But I think that's also because I have like a little bit of a entrepreneurial like mindset. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, you have to have some of that at least to do to make some of the moves that you made throughout like what we've described so far. I mean, uh, it's kind of entrepreneurial spirit is marked by like, you're willing to take some risks, go out on some ventures that are a little unconventional. And I mean, some of the things, some of the moves that you made were high risk, high reward type of things that ended up paying off. Yeah. So knowing what I know about what you're doing now, I'm guessing at some point you came to a boiling point with what you were doing and wanted to change what did that look like so uh one year ago when I moved here to Columbia South Carolina I was like so broke and I needed a piece of furniture to put my tv on and I had seen like you know Facebook marketplace curb alert I love free things I love a good deal so I ran and got that dresser and just kind of binge watched a few YouTube videos and painted it so it wouldn't look like atrocious in my house <laughs> um and the girl I was watching on YouTube kept talking about how she paid off her student loan debt with her furniture flipping furniture flipper furniture flipping teacher on YouTube if anybody's interested she's she is was actually a school teacher so she's very good at breaking things down and I was like she paid off 20 grand in student loan debt I was like I can make wow. money doing this so it kind of just became a hobby side hustle and I really just became so addicted to it, like binge watching videos and just trying to hustle and make money to save it. So you're essentially just kind of educating yourself for the side hustle on YouTube and yep. still, still in the other job at that time? Yeah. So I just left my other job two months ago now. So yeah. I, I did it for 10 months first before I decided to quit. Wow. And so you're, you're doing this for 10 months and it's like, it's clearly like paying off. You're making good money on it. Are you, 
is there a certain point where you start to make more money doing that than your actual job? Definitely not because my full-time job was taking so much of my time, like spending an hour in the morning and after work driving to and from work and furniture flipping is no joke. Like it's not an easy get, get rich quick scheme. So I wasn't making more, but I knew that there was a potential to make money doing something I enjoyed. And with the design background, I feel like a lot of the principles have really applied to the furniture flipping. So I really knew pretty early on that I wanted to quit and do a full time, but it just, it sounded like um, risky. And my mom always said, haste makes waste. So don't just jump and quit your job because you're tired of it. So I really made it a point to make sure I had saved up six months of living expenses before I quit my job, just in case it didn't work out. Gotcha. So that's basically the plan you came up with. It's like, once you hit that point, that tells you it's time to try it out. Yeah, I had actually set quite a few goals. I think it was save up six months living expenses. Um, I wanted to buy an enclosed trailer because it would make it so much easier to do it in bulk. Um, And then the other goal was I wanted to hit 10,000 followers on Instagram because I had seen other people posting their furniture flips and getting brand deals and having that second stream of income. So I didn't wait for the 10,000 followers. <laughs> I just went ahead and put in my two weeks. And it was actually that same week that my first video went viral. So, so I wanted time. to talk about that a little bit because Definitely. there's, there's more, we kind of talked off air about this a little bit. There's a lot that went into that. So, and, and knowing what you just described with the six months of living expenses and like the the monetary situation you're in and trying to create for yourself at the time that makes it even more wild that you took this risk with the course that you take that you took that ended up paying off could you talk a little bit about just the decision to take like a social media course and Mm -hmm. try to bring yourself up to that level yep so the course I took was uh, Maggie McGaw's Six Figure Academy. If you go and take it, got to give me credit. Sorry, get my <laughs> commission. <laughs> but her course was really good. The reason that I'm such a frugal person. So for me to spend $1,000 on a course to learn social media is insane. The reason that convinced me was that there were multiple other furniture flippers that took her course and hit 100K followers. Wow. So I was like, I, I think this is, there's something here. There's some sort of strategy in this course that I need to be using. Um, so I just went on a whim and took the course, spent a thousand dollars. And it was, I had quit my job that week and I didn't have my 10 K follower goal yet, but I was like, it's okay. Like we're going to work there. I think I was at like 4,000 followers. Um, pretty good. Yeah, but by the time my two weeks was up, I had my first video go viral and I was at 30,000 followers when I quit. And I was like, just absolutely baffled. And that same video just kept going and going and going until I hit 60,000 followers. Wow. So it really was just that reassurance that I made the right decision. Yeah, Um, all of a sudden you're just finding yourself at like six times the amount that you had set as a goal for yourself off of it was, one video yeah it was unreal that the timing was all within that week that I finally decided I'm done that's wild so did you have that six months of living expenses saved up though at the time yeah I did okay so that's that was probably like the biggest part of it for you is just having like that security to fall back on like knowing that you're covered there exactly so if I'm like a few months in and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm not making any money, which isn't the case. Cause if you're working hard, you're going to make money. Um, mm-hmm. I, it was just that peace of mind and knowing that I'm not um, making a decision on a whim because haste makes waste. Yeah. I think that's really valuable. There is just the, like having that plan in place and having those kind of set goals and benchmarks that you have, because otherwise I feel like it'd be really tough to know, when is the right point to take that leap and go ahead and do it? Exactly. So all the while you're getting this 
SEO and social media experience. You took this course. What are some of the big takeaways from that course, by the way? Um, some of the biggest things were focusing on reels, obviously, when it comes to Instagram. That's the main thing right now. And I, if you're not taking advantage of it, you definitely should be. Um, but it's kind of the strategy of how you create your reels to keep people's attention. So people's attention span is so short when they're scrolling on Instagram in comparison to YouTube. If you come to YouTube to watch a long form video and Instagram, you're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. So one of the most important things I think I learned was changing the frame like within three seconds. And that seems so quick. But mm -hmm. even if it's just a video of like me and you talking, I mean, you don't have to change the frame and random things. You can just change the angle of the camera and it will keep people's attention. Yeah, just something to kind of hook you in that first three seconds. Exactly. Like the hook exactly. is the biggest thing. Yeah, and then there's, of course, like the hook and the call to action is very important. Um, I think a lot of people have videos go viral and it doesn't translate into followers because they don't have a call to action at the end. It's it's kind of weird psychology behind the the call to action because somebody telling you follow me it doesn't make you think you why should I follow them because they're telling me to but it's like something in your subconscious just makes you hit the follow button because they told you to yeah that's interesting yeah I I mean you always see that on YouTube too they always say don't forget to like and subscribe and you would think that like yeah just because you're telling me to do it why would I do it but I guess it does work. It does because it's almost like, well, if you do genuinely like watching their videos, why wouldn't you want to support them? So it makes you kind of think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to support them so they can keep making videos for you to learn for free? Exactly. Another thing that we had kind of talked about off air that I thought was a really good point is you had talked about this concept of having a catalog of content for people to see when you actually did have a video go viral. I'd yeah. like to just talk about that a little bit and like why you think that's important, why you think that kind of played an instrumental role in the whole thing. Absolutely. Because it's like you can have a video go viral and it doesn't translate to followers because if they come to your page, you say your video was about furniture flipping and they came to my page and it's fishing. <laughs> so yeah. not, why, why would they follow me for fishing content when they liked the furniture flipping video? So it's really important to have that content that supports the video that goes viral because when they come to your page, they're going to see other furniture flips that they like that they just hadn't found because it didn't go viral. So it's really important to have um, that content already built out. So don't get discouraged if your videos aren't going viral. It'll play a role later down the road because that video that hits over a million views is going to give your other video 200,000 views. Because people did come you, to your profile. Did you see a lot of that when that first one went viral? Just other ones kind of popping off? Absolutely. So you'll see in your notifications, like everybody's looking at this one video, but then they're liking all your other videos too. So it, it does. It's important to have that other content. And then it just has like a snowball effect. Yeah. And then also of... you want to make sure that your, your bio is like on brand with what you're I guess I don't want to hate to say niche. It sounds like everybody says you're niche. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. You want it to be relatable. And and your bio, you want to tell people why they should be following you. You know, nobody really cares that you're a, a cat mom. Unless your niche is cats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's important to take advantage of your, um, your bio and your name. Make sure that you have um, SEO terms in your name. So could you explain that a little bit? Because SEO, I feel like a lot of there's a lot of mysticism around SEO and people that aren't necessarily in digital marketing, a lot of times don't quite understand it. But could you talk a little bit about just the importance of kind of being optimized for search and, and what that means in this context? When it comes to Instagram, I wouldn't overthink it. Um, just make sure it's relatable. Like for me, it's important that I have furniture flip and like DIY in my name because those are the things that people are searching for. I mean, you don't actually have to do keyword research. You can, but just think about what you search for when you're searching for that type of content. I search furniture flip or I'll search uh, furniture makeover. 
things like that if I'm looking for that type of content. So just make sure that those keywords are in your name. And then anyone that might be new that's just trying to find the type of content that you're putting out can find you more easily. Exactly. Uh, another thing that was really um, like a turning point in my mind for my Instagram was making the transition from trying to be a brand to just being myself. So I originally started the account. It was called like Flip and Decor. And I had this whole mindset that I'm going to start this brand and sell products. And I'm just going to make all this money on like on-demand products because that's what you see all over the internet. <laughs> so my whole like strategy was reposting other people's content, which I don't really recommend doing that, honestly, going back. If you do, you need to make sure you always get um, their their consent. Like mm -hmm. you need to DM them and ask them every time, can I repost this um, and give them credit? Don't want to be a content thief. No, but absolutely not you'll realize that that is just, it's inauthentic and, and it's honestly time consuming to DM every person and ask them and then repost it. Like, it's just not a good strategy. I, I did grow like 2000 followers doing that. But you're not really necessarily creating any kind of authority for yourself and your, in your industry and your niche, if you want to call it that at the same yeah. time. I think that people might follow you for one good post, but are they going to stay following you? For, what if I post one bad furniture flip? They might unfollow me. But if my page isn't about the furniture, it's about me, they probably aren't going to unfollow me because at some point they've heard my voice and seen my face and created some sort of connection with me. Some kind of trust too. Like, exactly. You, you, like buy in trust, buy in authority. And if you do have that one bad one, I mean, they've they've bought into the trust they they trust that you are going to figure it out in the long term probably yeah and that's one of the big things i learned in the course too is that if you want to monetize your social media the the most money is in brand deals and brands don't want to work with other brands they want to work with people that people trust that's an interesting point and i definitely wanted to talk about that a little bit kind of monetizing social media in general, because you said that's a big focus for you right now. But I've never really heard much about the kind of brand reach out that you're talking about. And I'd definitely like to get into that a little bit. And like, what yeah. goes into that? How does the research process look? And what are you kind of looking for in these brands that you're reaching out to? Okay, so there's a couple ways to monetize on social media. I think the two biggest ones is like affiliate marketing. And then there's brand deals, which brand deals is when like either you reach out to a brand or they reach out to you and they ask for some form of content promoting their product in exchange for payment, which a lot of times you see is brands um, just offering free products, which is, mm -hmm. is fine. That's, that's a good way to start if you're a smaller account. But if, if you have like even 20,000 followers, you shouldn't be accepting just free products. For your content unless it's like something really expensive like i don't know a flat screen tv maybe yeah. that, that might be worth it <laughs> but i think there's a a lot of confusion with brand deals and like what you should be charging and i've really struggled with that because it's just such a gray area like some one person with the same follower account as me might be charging double what i'm charging and i just didn't know that i could be charging that yeah, I guess it's probably about understanding all the things that go into it and what you actually are providing. I would imagine that a big selling point would just be getting into your engagement too and showing like exactly. some statistics about your engagement. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, I think it's really important for influencers to like talk to each other. And I know a lot of people in the furniture industry do that. Like, I feel like I have friends over the internet that I've never met in real life. But it's so important to like kind of be open with each other so that none of us are getting screwed. Yeah. So what are some big takeaways or turning points that you've had in your kind of search for brand deals? Any in particular that I guess maybe successes and failures, ones that have really worked out and ones that haven't? Yeah. 
Well, I kind of expected, you know, when I get a lot of followers, like the brands will just be reaching out to me. And it doesn't really happen like that. Like I've had a few that it's happened like that. But I think you really have to take the initiative and reach out to them and pitch yourself. Don't just say like collab question mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you want to do is um, DM them with like maybe like a thought out content idea and ask for like the PR email. Because a lot of times the people you're talking to on social media might not be the person who's in charge of like the marketing collaborations. So you want to try to get that email contact and make a long-term relationship with them. Gotcha. And you're you're actually pitching like an idea for the content with that. I think that's really smart because you're providing value on the front end. You're kind of telling them, hey, I'm not expecting you to take the reins on this. I just have this idea that I'd love to do. Yeah, exactly. You want to provide, you want to show them the value that you offer because otherwise, like, what, what, what do you have to offer? You want me to pay you, but you don't even have the idea for the content. You just want me to send you free product and pay you. Uh, you yeah. have to have like an actual idea and really pitch yourself to them and like tell them about your following and who your followers are. And you can see all that stuff in your analytics. Yeah. So you've got that very clear evidence that you can present to them. And it's kind of this whole pitch with the content idea that the audience that's going to be seeing it. What are um, what are some things that show you that a, a particular brand might be good to work with when you're looking yeah. for them? One of the things you can do is search like hashtag ad or hashtag um, partner. And a lot of times you'll see like all these ads that are on Instagram through that hashtag. And you can kind of look and see well, what brands are already working with influencers because they likely are the ones that will have the budget to work with more influencers because sometimes, you know, if you reach out to like a small mom and pop brand, they're not going to have a lot of money to dish out. They might send you some free product, but you want to make sure that you're reaching out to brands who are continuously working with influencers. And they've clearly already bought into the concept too. Not every company is going to even necessarily buy into the concept of doing brand deals, I guess. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, you want me to pay you and send you free products? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so any in particular that like maybe crashed and burned that like you really learned from or have you had pretty good success with them so far? Um, a lot of brands would just ghost you. I'd say like just reach out a bunch and if, if one out of a hundred say yes, then that's a success. It's just a numbers game. Yeah, it, it really is. And and also it's a timing thing because sometimes like a brand will reach out and say like, ah, oh, we don't have any campaigns, uh, but next spring, yeah, we'll keep you in mind. We have this campaign. Um, you just have to, I really need to be writing this stuff down and like remember to follow up with them. Because sometimes I've had brands say like, oh, yes, we're going to do this partnership. And then they kind of just forget. So you just have to follow yeah. up because they have so much on their plate and they have like hundreds of people messaging them about partnerships. Yeah, follow up is so important. I've, I have that with, uh, with doing this podcast, for example, too. I mean, for reference, I think we probably started talking about doing this like, what, maybe three months ago. And yeah. then here we are kind of finally getting around to it. I mean, it timing is such an important aspect in anything you do. You've got to just keep following up, keep following up. I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, I agree. So anything else in the kind of scope of monetizing social media that you really you think would be good to cover? Is, is brand deals going to be kind of your main strategy going forward? Or are there other things that you're really focusing on? The other big thing is um, like affiliate marketing, and I haven't quite figured that one out yet. I mean, it's all, I'm still learning all of it because it's very new to me. I hit 100,000 followers, I think maybe like, it was just like two months ago or one month ago. Um, so I'm still definitely trying to learn how to monetize my social media, but affiliate marketing is one that I've really struggled with because like the commission is so low. You'll like, if you're doing Amazon, it's like, or two percent and you really have to be pushing those links a lot of the time and what's you have to balance like not 
like drowning your social media content and buy this, buy that, buy this. I don't like seeing that. Nobody likes being sold to. So to me, it's almost like affiliate marketing isn't worth it for me. Just from what I've observed and like talking to people, it seems like the brand deals is just kind of a better long-term strategy because you're you're able to maintain that value that you're actually providing to your audience without kind of cramming it down cramming the monetization yeah. down their throat i think affiliate marketing and like amazon links is a really good strategy for youtube because like the the lifespan of the content on youtube is way longer than instagram you can only post links on stories which lasts 24 hours or maybe you'll put it in your your highlight so it'll always be there but on YouTube, like people are watching these long form videos and they really want the link to the product. So that's almost passive income at that point. So it's definitely worth it if you're doing YouTube. But on Instagram, the affiliate for me isn't really worth it. I think that makes a lot of sense. So kind of zooming back out from the social media thing, I did want to talk about just how it's been since you did go full-time because obviously you did make that decision to kind of branch out and go full-time with it you said a couple months ago right yeah it's uh been oh my gosh time flies like two almost three months now and it seems like it's going really well so far I mean you've had just continued success what has that been like and what has I mean what kind of things have you observed about yourself being able to go fully into that it's definitely been a continuous learning process. There's things that I personally have to work around, like the weather, because I don't have a shop yet. I just have like a little 10 by 12 shop. So I'm pretty much working in the yard. Um, so that's something I kind of have to work around. Um, and one thing I've learned is that I don't really enjoy taking commission work like I thought I would. Everybody pushes commission work as like this fabulous thing because it's like a guaranteed payment mm -hmm. but to, to me I have a creative background and the part about furniture flipping that I like is the design and when I'm doing clients furniture I lose all of that so at that point I might as well be a cabinet refinisher there's more money in that yeah so I so, decided to stop doing that so that was people just kind of reaching out to have you do something to their existing piece yeah, and it's such gotcha. a great it's such a great form of income if you're somebody who wants to flip furniture just for the money, like you just want to paint it a, a neutral color and get paid. That's mm -hmm. a great way to make money. Like I've turned down multiple projects just because I have a whole storage unit full of so much furniture I need to get to. So there's So how are you how are you acquiring all this furniture? Like where are you, are you just kind of like searching different wholesalers or how does that work? Because you said you do it in bulk now that you've got the trailer. I swear furniture finds me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, but um, so it's really a lot about like, well, in places like Florida and Texas, there's um, like bulk trash pickup days and people, you'd be so surprised at the furniture that they're throwing out. Where I'm at, we don't have that. So I'm relying on finding deals on Facebook Marketplace and thrift stores. So thing with Facebook Marketplace is what happened recently is I went to go pick up a bedroom set for dirt cheap. It was $75. And I got there and the lady was clearing out the house because her friend had just passed away. So I ended up going for one bedroom set and I left with two bedroom sets and a dining set. Wow. All, all for like $100 just because she wanted it gone. So that's, that's really where the trailer became so helpful to me because I would have never been able to take it before. So that yeah. picking it up in like bulk like that, that has really helped me. Um, and the other one is just word of mouth, talking to people, telling people what you're doing. I'm having like friends of friends and reach out to me like, I have this set. Do you want it? I'm just going to throw it away or I'm going to post it for free. So word of mouth. Um, my dad has been such a helpful person when it comes to that he does like electrical work and houses and his wife does cleaning houses 
So people will just give them furniture. So oh like, wow. Yeah, he's been collecting. I just went to Thanksgiving and picked up a whole trailer load that he's been collecting in his garage for me. That's awesome. So there's Dude, that. You have it coming in from all these different avenues, basically. Yeah. The main ones are marketplace, though, and thrift stores. If you don't have the resources, like somebody collecting furniture for you. <laughs> uh, the main thing with the thrift stores is um, like avoid Goodwill it's terrible and like they've been price gouging lately because they know that furniture flipping has gotten really popular so i would try to find like local church thrift stores and then a good tip is to make friends with one of them <laughs> because like one of the pastors at the church that i shop at a lot has my phone number and when he gets like a mid-century modern dresser he'll like send me a picture of it do you want this i'm like on my way <laughs> that's awesome yeah. Yeah. Then you've got that existing helpful. relationship. You're just the go-to. Yep. Because they want it. It's an easy sale for them. It's a win-win for both of us. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about like the margins in doing this. Yep. Because obviously you're able to. You kind of talked about how you're able to acquire it very cheaply. What are some examples of like really good markups you've been able to have on different furniture pieces? Because I'm curious about just like how profitable it is i would guess pretty damn profitable if you're able to get i mean obviously that the one case you mentioned where you got multiple bedroom sets and a dining set for a hundred dollars is probably kind of unique but in most it's cases not. it's not that unique it's not you'd be so surprised at the furniture you can get for dirt cheap um the main thing is making sure you're looking for solid wood furniture you can paint laminate furniture it's just it's not as quality and you're not going to be able to sell it for as much. Um, I would say that I typically try to spend $50 or less on a piece of furniture. So like a dresser, $50. It's a nightstand. I only do nightstand sets. I don't ever do like a single nightstand unless it's free. Um, but I wouldn't go out of my way to pick up a free single nightstand. Um, but $50 or less. And when I started a year ago, I would say I was selling dressers for like $150. I had no idea. And if your messages on Marketplace are blowing up from people messaging you, you need to increase your price. Yeah. Like a lot. Like a lot. <laughs> um, so I would say in the beginning, I was selling dressers that I got for free for like $50 at about $150 not a lot in materials at first it was a lot more because i had to invest in like the sander and the sandpaper and stuff but once you've had it your cost of supplies goes down especially if you're doing both like me buying like gallons mm. of paint yeah cheaper that way um but now i would say like my most recent dresser i sold for 525 and i got wow. it for, yeah and i got it for free so wow yeah um that also comes down to like the quality of work though i would say the dresser i sold a year ago was only worth 150 dollars. <laughs> but the dresser, obviously you get better at it as you go exactly i'm like looking back at those pictures i'm like oh my gosh so it was just like streaky and i didn't know what i was doing um but now i'm using a spray gun so the, the finish it looks flawless and it's probably hard. more efficient too i would guess like you get more efficient at it and better at the same time i think that's a hallmark of like really anything that you're getting better at is that you should be able to look back a year ago and be like, I was doing that. I was putting that out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I look back, I'm like, I can't believe I was only making 150. But then I also look back at the quality of the work and it was probably only worth 150 at the time. Now, how long is something like that one that you sold for 525? How long is that taking you to do that one? It really depends on the condition of the piece of furniture and what you're going to do with it. Like that one was like one of the good flips. It was easy to work with. Like I just painted it, which is so much quicker than if you're um, like stripping it and refinishing the wood. So that one I probably got done in like a day or two, but that's wow. not, that's not working the whole day either because there's like hours in between that you're waiting on coats of paint to dry. So that's like a good flip. But then there's other flips that you should avoid, like previously painted furniture, because you don't mm -hmm. know how they painted it. And if you paint furniture without properly cleaning it, 
um, the, the paint will end up like peeling off and you'll have to strip the whole thing down, which is like so much more work. So I've had dressers that took like three to four times as long as they should have. So just try to avoid those. But yeah, you just kind of get better, better and more efficient at all sides of it. And I, I want to go back to that point that you had about your messages on Facebook Messenger were just blowing up and you decided to increase the prices. How did you know how much to increase them? Because I think that's a good point is that like really, I mean, with anything that you're selling, it's going to be kind of a game of supply and demand. And if you have incredible demand that you can't even fulfill, that means you need to increase your prices to balance it out. But what? how did you know what the right amount was? It's really just testing your market because like that dresser I sold for $5.25 here in South Carolina. If I was in like Austin or like a big city, I probably could have sold it for like 800 or more. Um, so it's testing your market. And the, the motto is you can always drop the price, but you yeah. can't increase it when you're posting on marketplace. So, so you kind of just throw something out there, throw like maybe a higher price than you would typically be comfortable with and then just see if it sticks. I always like try to think about what I want to get out of the dresser, how much I think it's worth and how much time and money I put into it. And then I'll post it for 20% more than that because you always want to give a little uh, bargaining power to the marketplace buyers. They don't need to know that. Yeah. <laughs> so always this is part of the it. game. Post 20% higher and then give yourself that lead. If somebody asks for like 50 bucks off, it's no big deal. Gotcha. So obviously you said getting the trailer was a pretty big turning point for you. Going full time, I'm sure was an even bigger turning point for you. Any other like big turning points that come to mind along the journey that really kind of allowed you to elevate your game? Um, one thing that I'm kind of in the works now I don't know if it's going to work out, but um, I went to an antique mall. So it's like basically this strip where people sell all their like antique and vintage items. And some people sell, sell flipped furniture. Um, and I got the opportunity to put my furniture in like the front of this lady's store. Um, so I'm going to try that out and see how it goes. If I can get more for my furniture, it will be worth it. Um, and also, like my finished furniture right now goes to my storage unit. So every time somebody wants to come look at the furniture, I have to drive out to the storage unit and meet them. So having my furniture at the storefront might end up saving me time, even though yeah. I, have to, I have to pay them like 12%. It'll probably be worth it. 12% is not too bad, I would guess. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if the store has pretty good foot traffic and the right people coming in, I bet... I bet they would be able to mark it up for more than 12%, more than you would be selling it. So you'd probably still end up making more. Exactly. And then I don't have to deal with meeting people, strangers at a storage unit. Yeah. And also, I guess there's a little bit of sketchiness in that too. There is. Um, like the whole thing about going and picking up furniture by myself, my mom gets so worried about it. It's, it is kind of dangerous because... I try to not go into people's houses and like oh, the right thing to do is if somebody's buying furniture from you is to have it outside for mm -hmm. them to pick up, but not everybody thinks that way. So I've had times where like, you know, you end up going in their house to get it and you just really have to read the situation. I'd say the only time I've ever done that is if it's like an elderly couple and I know that they, they really can't move the furniture themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to be very cautious about where I go. Any funny stories or like crazy stories from just like going to different places like that and like meeting all these people? Um, I feel like you get a lot of connections doing that. Um, one of the recent places I went to, it was like a hoarding house. Like it was so gross. <laughs> I don't I'm trying to think. I don't think I have any really crazy stories that come. It's probably mind. for the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of by design, I guess. Mm -hmm. it, it's definitely sketchy, though. And also selling furniture for a higher price like I am now, 
it's not a great presentation meeting somebody at a storage unit you know it's like my storage unit isn't like a storefront it doesn't look nice because I have stuff that I haven't gotten to yet in there so it, it doesn't look great for somebody to come meet me at my storage unit and they're paying like top dollar for a dresser that makes sense. And I, I guess what you're kind of getting at here is it sounds like you might have future plans to have kind of a storefront. Maybe. I don't, we'll see how this booth goes, but I think the whole benefit of furniture flipping is that there is low overhead. Like You don't really need a storefront with Facebook Marketplace as great as it is. So I honestly don't see myself getting a storefront. I kind of want to try to play off of um like the social media and digital marketing aspect of it, maybe try a YouTube channel. I think that is a really good idea, by the way. If you made like a a YouTube channel where you're kind of show, I mean, kind of like how you started learning, right? How you were yeah. watching the other YouTube channel. If you made one where you're kind of showing people how to do this and walking through a lot of these things that you've learned around like the whole thing. I think there's a huge like gap in YouTube when it comes to full-time furniture flipping. Like everybody's like side hustle, side hustle, but nobody really talks about like the realistic part of flipping furniture full-time. And I know there's a lot of people who want to do it and are just too scared to take the risk. So I have people watching me like, oh, well, like, are you making money or how many pieces are you flipping a week or all questions that I wish somebody would have answered for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what did you do to save up your money or how did you do it um, there's just a lot of questions about how you can do it full-time I think that's a great point just as like a more holistic thing too there's so much value in having taken a risk of some kind that people are scared to take and it having paid off because you have the authority of having figured out this thing that seems daunting and seems hard to do so I, I think I could see that really paying off for you. Yeah. And it's it seems like it's a great um, passive sort of income stream. Yeah. If you can grow a big enough following, you've just got the ad revenue coming in. So it's just increasing those streams of revenue more and more. Exactly. So any other kind of things that come to mind as far as future expansion for the furniture flipping business? What would you like to see? I guess over, so you're a year in, you said even just two days ago. Um, it's a cool point to be doing this for sure. What are some things that you would like to see in the next three to five years? I want to learn how to build furniture. That's definitely probably like the long-term goal of mine. I've been kind of dabbling with um, just like building new bases for the furniture I'm flipping. Uh, so I want to learn how to build a dresser myself so that I can be more creative even with the design of the furniture because that is again what my background is in product design so I know I have the capabilities I just need to learn how to do the woodworking so hopefully like very long term I could have my own furniture brand that's awesome I think a great start is trying to get into those storefronts I mean that really puts your brand out there in a unique way especially in the local community. And then you could probably expand to other cities from there if it's going well. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Well, anything else that comes to mind as far as future expansion, things that you're excited about, like other little projects you're working on? I know that I want to probably create a website soon, uh, possibly retail paint. I don't know exactly if there's a market for it yet. Um, A lot of people just buy D to C or from big box stores but that might also be an option like coming out with my own line of paint yeah absolutely i mean i think having your own line of like all the different things that are involved would be good and maybe even having sponsorships or brand partnerships with the different equipment that you use could work out definitely a lot of ways you could go with it yeah i agree i'm definitely excited for the future and just it's important to me that I just keep on learning and educating myself more. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit off air too. I think there's a lot of value in having that mindset. Is that something you've always had? Is I would call that kind of a growth mindset is just wanting to continue to educate yourself. And if you go back to common theme through this, you you took that course after you had already graduated college. So it's clearly something you buy into. 
Is that something yeah. you think you've always had? Yeah, I love that that saying, a growth mindset. I definitely think I have that. Um, I'm always just wanting to educate myself, whether it's about my furniture business or just like finance in general, because I don't want to be struggling 30 years from now. Like, I guess the whole goal ultimately is financial freedom. And that's why I wanted to work for myself, because I just didn't ever see that happening with me working a nine to five corporate job. I just felt like I was working towards somebody else's goals. Yeah. And there's just, there's less control over your ultimate kind of financial state, right? You can, you could really control the inputs and, and just achieve greater outputs if you're working for yourself. Yeah. What is, here's an interesting question around the financial freedom. What is it for you that draws you to wanting that so much? What is, what is the purpose you think of having financial freedom? I want to work because I want to work. It's not because I have to work. Like there's just this like tying struggle, feeling like you have to make rent. You have to, or you won't have somewhere to live. I don't want to feel that struggle. And if I want to take a two week vacation, fishing trip somewhere, I want to have that option. Yeah. And I mean, there's a great point in there about working because you want to work that allows you to pursue the kinds of things that you're more passionate about rather than having to just do things out of necessity of making the rent, like you said. Yeah. And like, how, I think money is the reason that people don't take those risks in their careers. It's because I have to have this nine to five. I have, have kids to feed or I have this mortgage to pay. And the lucky thing for me was that I didn't have any of that yet. I don't have a car payment. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any kids. So now is the time for me to take risks. Definitely. Well, it's certainly paying off. Well, I wanted to, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to just continue following your journey. It's a really unique thing that you're doing too. I mean, I, I don't know anyone else doing furniture flipping in general. And it's just a, it's a cool thing to see something so unique and so out of the box paying off. Very cool to hear about the background that went into it. Yeah. So, so one thing I wanted to ask you is kind of a repeat question I have on the show. If you, so you're a year into this now, into the furniture flipping. Obviously, it's come with a lot of different turning points that we've gone through and everything. I wanted to ask you if you could go back in time and just talk to Abby a year ago as you were getting into it, just having the wisdom and the knowledge that you have now, what are a couple of things you would tell her to do differently getting into it? I do think I kind of took it in a strategical approach and I'm glad I did if it came down to the actual like aspect of doing the work there's a lot of things I could have told myself to do differently just as far as um like actually how to paint um but as far as like the business approach I had I, I don't think I would change anything yeah I think you were very measured in your approach and that you had those goals that you needed to achieve before you went full-time and I actually, I want to take this as a little pause to just talk about that. I think there's a misconception about entrepreneurship and business a lot of times, and that you just have to be this. Obviously, we've kind of established that you are a little bit more comfortable with risk than maybe someone who's not of entrepreneurial spirit. But I think there's this misconception about taking those risks and about going on a new entrepreneurial venture, that it's just that, that it's just a risk and it's a huge gamble. And if it doesn't pay off, it doesn't pay off. But really, it's it's cool to see how measured you really were with it and that, yes, it was a risk and there, if it didn't pay off, it didn't pay off. But you had that security blanket that you had built in the background that you knew like, if it doesn't work out, it's going to be okay. You can go on to the next thing. I think that's really important. Absolutely. But I know there was a big part of me that didn't want it to fail. So I knew that I was going to work as hard as I could to make sure that it didn't fail because there's nothing I don't want more than to go back to a corporate job. Absolutely. I I get that. I mean, I have that same thing. I luckily was able to kind of 
go full time with what I do. I similar situation was kind of building it on the side and then ended up quitting my full time when I felt like I could. It's it's just there's so much freedom in it too, being able to kind of dictate your own schedule and everything. There is. And, I was just thinking about yesterday. Um I was gonna drive home on Sunday from Thanksgiving and I got a flat tire. So I was like, okay, I just need to stay in Jacksonville the other day, you know, get my tire taken care of drive home in the daylight when it's safe but if I had my job still I would have had to like try to rush home to get to work yeah it kind of just controls your whole life in a way I mean you're you're just really chained down to that schedule um but I mean if you're working for yourself you can kind of be wherever do whatever and just get some work done I mean there's so many times I'll find myself just waiting for something and I just sit down and crank out some work on my laptop because I can I actually find that I a lot of times I work more because I work for myself and I enjoy it more at the same time definitely you find yourself working harder than ever before everybody thinks oh you know owning your own business working for yourself you're gonna get to work less but you're working because you want to work Mm -hmm. because you truly enjoy what you're doing it feels less like work that way too. I mean, it's just, you kind of get caught up in it. I'll find myself like doing some editing or doing something. All of a sudden it's like one, two in the morning. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it's having a good time. Didn't feel like work. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's so great. <laughs> well, another thing I wanted to ask you, just because the name of the show is Profession Session. I have kind of a thesis with the show that, and you're an incredible example of this, that anything really can be a profession if it's approached the right way. So obviously with the furniture flipping, it's a very unconventional path that you've kind of carved out for yourself, but it's working out, it's making you money, it's building a career for you. I'm curious what it means to you personally to be a professional. I think a professional is somebody who has learned the skill maybe hasn't mastered it yet. I think you don't have to master it to still be a professional, but maybe you can do it better than the average person. So you mastered a skill that people will pay for. And that makes you, and you hold yourself true to those standards. That makes you a professional. I love that. Well, Abby, anything else that you would want to leave the audience with? Um, I don't think so. Maybe just follow me on Instagram. <laughs> it's flipped by Abby. It flips by Abby. And I'll put the link to your Instagram and everything else that can be used to find you in the uh, the show notes if you're listening on audio or the description if you're watching on video. Abby, thank you again so much for coming on. This has been so great. Thanks so much, Brody. Thanks so much for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. Stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that I put out on different social media channels. We could be found on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, all major podcast platforms. You can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast. And if you happen to know a young standout business owner, professional, or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for Profession Session, DM me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know and they could be the next to tell their story here until next time again this has been profession session stay focused stay hustling and stay networking